Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the second best app that I have on my phone. A close second to the podcast app, of course. Whenever I run out of podcasts to listen to, I always turn to Audible. Right now, I'm in the middle of listening to a really, really interesting book called Between Good and Evil, a master profiler's hunt for society's most violent predators. The book is written by Roger L. DePew and Susan Chindette. After spending so much time lately working with Jim Clemente and Laura Richards on the Adnan Syed case, I've become fascinated with the art and science of criminal profiling. This book is written by profilers just like Jim and Laura. Right now, you can download this book for free or any other book that you desire simply by going to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. Audible is offering Truth and Justice listeners a free audiobook. Remember when you go to the website that the extension at the end is still our old title. So again, to get one free audiobook from Audible, go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I'm back in the studio this week, but not for long. Right before recording this episode, I just booked next week's travel. Next week, I'll be going to Baltimore to attend Adnan Syed's post-conviction relief hearing. I had to move some things around in my schedule to make it work, but at the end of the day, I just felt like I had to be there to support Adnan and everyone that's worked so hard, including all of you, to make this hearing happen. I know that you'll all be with me there in spirit, and I'll keep you posted through Twitter, Facebook, and Periscope while I'm there. I don't know when you'll be listening to this episode, but Adnan's hearing begins on February 3rd. So if you're a person of faith, now is the time to pray to whoever you pray to. And if you're not, this is the time for happy and positive thoughts. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for. This is the moment that we've all been working for. And my prayer is that next week in Baltimore, justice will finally be served. In this episode, I'm going to take you all along with me on the journey that I made to Tyler, Texas last week. I'm going to break down the events of the trip and reveal all the new information and all the new questions that I discovered while I was there. Before I went to Tyler, I made a quick pit stop along the way to Los Angeles, California. I know it's not really on the way, but it was an incredibly useful stop for the Anand Syed case. I spent many hours while I was in Los Angeles working with Jim Clemente and Laura Richards. And at 1 o'clock in the morning on the last night that I was there, we recorded the first of what's probably going to be two or three segments about Anand's case. So next week on February 7th, we're going to hit pause on Kenny's case, and I'll be dropping episode 133, Jim Clemente and Laura Richards' analysis of Jay Wilde's interrogations. While I was in L.A., I hooked up with a guy named Adam Weissman. 
Adam's a fan of the show, and volunteered to go to Texas with me and watch my back and videotape the entire trip. He's a great guy and he was a lot of help and he even had a nice hot coffee waiting for me when I got to the airport. Adam and I hit the ground running in Dallas late in the morning. We jumped in the rental car and headed straight for the Tyler Police Department. We were going to the Tyler Police Department to pick up a stack of documents that the Tyler Police Chief claimed that they didn't have. And that's a story in and of itself. Way back in December, I filed a FOIA request with the Tyler Police Department for all case documents that they had on the Kenny Snow case. About three weeks later, I received a response back that said that they don't have any documentation on that case and I need to check with Smith County. As I mentioned on the show before, I thought this was odd, so I shot an email off to the Tyler City Police Chief, Gary Swindle, and I assumed that it must be some kind of a mistake. I mean, how could the Tyler Police Department not have documentation for a case that they investigated? I asked Chief Swindle if he'd be willing to sit down and talk with me, either on or off the record while I was in Tyler. He told me that he would need to do some research on the case before he'd be willing to talk to me because he doesn't know anything about it. He wasn't the police chief when this incident occurred. Episode 204 dropped on Sunday, and Monday morning I got a nice email from Chief Swindle informing me that he would not be speaking to me either on or off the record. I responded to the chief explaining to him that I'm telling this story from all angles, I do not have an agenda, and I'm only looking for the truth. And this is his opportunity to get his side of the story out there. I further explained to him that the only thing that I have to report on the Tyler Police Department right now is that I have documented proof that his department illegally destroyed DNA in at least two cases. There's no refuting that fact. I further explained to him that regarding the FOIA request, one of two things has happened. Either the Tyler Police Department indeed does not have any documentation on Kenny Snow's case, which would be a violation of Texas state law regarding records retention, or they do in fact have documentation and they're refusing to send it to me, which would be a violation of the Freedom of Information Act. He then told me that his office never received a request from me. Well, lucky for him, I keep better records than he does, because I emailed him back copies of the original request with the Tyler Police Department receive stamp on it. I had the certified mail receipt where the document had been signed for by his department, and also sent him a copy of the letter that they sent me telling me that they had received the request and they had no documentation. Amazingly enough, a couple of hours later, Chief Swindle was able to find the documents. He told me that he'd leave them on the counter for me at the police department when I was in town. So like I said, the first stop was the Tyler PD. Adam and I walked in and went to the counter, and a very nice lady at the front desk handed me my stack of papers, with a nice post-it note on top that says, For Robert Ruff, no charge. I asked the lady at the counter if Chief Swindle would have a few minutes to speak with me. She was nice and bubbly and said sure and went back to go get him. She returned a few minutes later with kind of a somber look on her face and told me that the chief was unavailable, but maybe his assistant could talk to me. I said sure, she disappeared to the back again, and she came back looking even more uncomfortable than she did the first time. She told me that the chief and the assistant were now in a closed-door meeting and neither one of them would be available. Starting to feel like we were pushing our luck, Adam and I headed back out to the car with our stack of papers. We kept the recorder running most of the time we were in the car, just for our own safety to document where we were at. I think it might be. I think the police chief just walked past us. And he didn't wave at me when I waved back at him. When I waved to him. Okay, all cards on the table. I don't know for sure if that was the police chief or some other officer. But whoever he was, he looked like he was kind of an asshole. Now, I do want to take this moment to point out that my experience at the Tyler Police Department was literally the only bad experience that we had in Tyler, Texas. 
I can totally see why many of the people that have emailed me from Tyler said that it's a great town. Everyone we met was really friendly, very accommodating, and very laid back. The city has a population of about 100,000 people, and there's very clearly a really nice side of Tyler and a much darker side of Tyler. But we spend most of our time in the nice part of Tyler, right downtown, right in front of the courthouse. It really has that small town atmosphere. It's the type of downtown where you can park in one place and just walk to anywhere you want to go. The only place we really had to get into our car to go was to hit up Stanley's Barbecue, and we were told that was a must. And for all you Tyler folks, thank you for the recommendation. It was delicious. So the next order of business was to get in contact with Luanda Lacey. She was the public defender who filed the motion to have Kenny's DNA tested in 2006. I'd spoke to her the week before we went and told her that I was having difficulties getting a hold of the documents for Kenny's case. She told me she was going to go down to the district attorney's office and pull the documents herself and let me make some copies of them in her office. She was a sweet woman, and she told me to go up to what she called her courtroom, the 114th District. That's where she spends most of her days defending clients. She told me to come on up and told me that I can't miss her. She said she'd be the only older black lady in there with great big red glasses, and she wasn't hard to spot. So I was able to track down Luanda easily enough, but unfortunately, she had no documents for me. So get this. The district attorney's case file for Kenny Snow is missing. She said it just wasn't there. It wasn't signed out. No one knows who has it. It's just missing. So while we were already in the courthouse, Adam and I decided to go on over to the district clerk's office. I told you guys two weeks ago about April Fox, the assistant district clerk. She was the one that said she would set all of Kenny's documents aside for me for when I came in. And sure enough, she was just as sweet in person as she was over the phone. And she had a great big box full from one end to the other with case documents. She had even cleared off a table for me and Adam to sort through them. We spent a few minutes thumbing through the pages before we realized that this is going to be a long project and we're running out of daylight. So we gave April her files back and told her that we'd be back the next day to go through them. And we headed over to a local attorney's office that I'd been put in contact with by a listener. This gentleman doesn't want to be named on the podcast, but he was extremely helpful. He blocked out an hour of his day to sit down with me and Adam and give us all the background we were looking for and all the characters in this crazy story. He was the first one to clue me in to a person that I definitely need to contact on my next trip, which won't be long from now. And this guy, who was described by everyone I spoke with as being a shady character, is Joe Costello. So my hope is on my next trip I can meet Joe and see if he lives up to his reputation. But one of the most interesting things that I learned from this attorney is the track record of the Tyler Police Department regarding destroying DNA evidence. I kind of caught him off guard with the questions, and he didn't have solid facts and figures to give me, but I asked him if he's ever heard of other cases where people have filed motions to have their DNA tested, only to find out that the Tyler Police Department had destroyed it. He said, sure, that happens sometimes, but not all the time. He said there's been a few cases where he's filed for DNA testing, and they had it. And my next question for him was, did anybody ever successfully have their DNA tested and had it help their case? Now this is important. He said no. Anytime he could think of where someone actually got their DNA tested and it hadn't been destroyed by the Tyler Police Department, the results never proved to be helpful for the inmate that was filing for the testing. So this got me thinking. It seems to be hit or miss whether the Tyler Police Department destroys DNA evidence or keeps it. But in every case that this lawyer could think of where they actually kept the evidence, it wasn't helpful to the inmate. 
This is that pattern that we were talking about. I don't want to go all conspiracy theory this early in the game, but it sure seems awfully convenient to me that people claim to be innocent and ask for their DNA to be tested, and sometimes it's destroyed, but every time that it hasn't been destroyed, it wasn't helpful. It makes me wonder about the DNA destruction selection process for the Tyler Police Department, which has opened up a whole other pile of work for me. It's time to file a request to get a detailed log of every single piece of biological evidence that has been destroyed by the Tyler Police Department. Something stinks here. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. As we were leaving the attorney's office, the shadows were getting long and all of the businesses and government offices were shutting down for the night. It was just about time to find some grub and head back to the hotel when I received a call. This is a collect call from... Kenneth Neon Snow. An offender at Styles Unit. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Alright, you know I had to do that at least once. My little nod to cereal. Like I mentioned last week, Kenny convinced the Major to let him make a quick call to me while they were still on lockdown. We talked for just a few minutes, and I wasn't able to record it. But he did call back on Monday, and I was able to get a good recording. I spoke with the assistant warden at the prison, and he told me that there was nothing in the rules against me recording the conversation. He basically said that they'll be recording it, so I might as well too. But in the conversation that I had with Kenny while I was in Tyler, he dropped kind of a bombshell on me. He told me that I need to know that he had actually confessed to one of the robberies. He confessed to the police to the robbery that occurred at Bill's used tire. But he still says that he didn't do it. He said that he was coerced into confessing because the officers that were interrogating him threatened to pick up his girlfriend who was pregnant with his child at the time if he didn't confess. He said that they had sat in the interrogation room for several hours several times and it was during a smoke break when the officers made the threat. I was told by the police officer, hey, say, man, if you don't just go ahead, just go ahead and fast to the robbery, so we don't go ahead and arrest the girl, Sean. Sean is but, your uh, girlfriend and your, your your baby's mother. Yeah, she was. So they were trying to say she helped me out. but So then he told me, said, look, man, I told me, sure, we're going to arrest her. So that's why I, w- I said, yeah, okay, if you if you going to leave her alone, I'll confess to the, I'll confess the robbery. If you don't arrest her, we sat down. I was stumbling through because I didn't know I didn't know who was the white dude. I didn't know who it was at all. This was definitely a what the fuck moment for me. I mean, come on, like this case wasn't difficult enough without dealing with a confession. So feeling a little bit discouraged, I went ahead and put a pin in the confession thing and headed back to the hotel to start sifting through some of these new documents. Adam and I checked into the hotel and then met another fan of the show at the local Applebee's. 
Now, I'll tell you right now, I'm not a fan of Applebee's. But as it turns out, the town that we were staying in, Canton, Texas, it was the only restaurant around that was A, open past 8 o'clock at night, and B, a place where we could get a cold beer. Turns out, Canton is a dry town. So we had dinner and a beer, and then it was back to the hotel to do some light reading. I had about 150 pages of new documents to sort through. I read through the documents until I couldn't stay awake any longer, but in that short period of time, I discovered a few key points. Number one, I read Smith County's investigation log for the Bills used tire robbery. It turns out they had a couple of other suspects who lived in the area and had similar MOs to the crime. But the Smith County Sheriff's Department was pointing the direction of Kenny Snow because of a Crime Stoppers tip. The law goes right through the process of looking for people who were driving similar cars, who lived in the area, repeat offenders that might have similar MOs. It says they showed Bill Cole a lineup and he identified someone but said that he couldn't be sure that it was him. The investigation goes on for a couple of days before that Crime Stoppers tip gets called in. Also in that log, it describes the chronology of the interrogation of Kenny Snow. Through most of it, the notes say that he denied everything. And then I came to this section of the notes. And I'll read it to you verbatim. Waller and Van Ness then began to escort Snow back to Waller's vehicle in order to transport him back to the Smith County Jail. Snow, who had asked for a cigarette, was allowed to smoke one outside the East Staff entry door at the police department. While smoking a cigarette, Snow stated, quote, Look here, I'll come clean with y'all, man. And then verbally confessed to the robbery at Bill Cole's tire store in Swan but continued to deny the aggravated robbery on Highway 271. When asked if he would give another statement, Snow advised that he would. So Kenny tells me that he'd been interrogated for a couple of hours, and then they took him outside on a smoke break, and then threatened to arrest his pregnant girlfriend if he didn't confess. The police notes say that they were done interrogating him, they were getting ready to transport him back to the jail, he was having a cigarette, and just decides to say, let me quote it again, Look here. I'll come clean with y'all, man. Sound familiar? <clears throat> Jay Wilds. After reading that portion of the report, I decided that enough was enough for that night, and I turned in. Adam and I were up bright and early the next morning, and the first mission on that day's docket was coffee. Adam ran into McDonald's to get us some coffee while I laid out the schedule for the day. Did I tell you already that I really enjoyed hanging out with Adam for those few days? He was full of astute observations like this one. Have you noticed that the further you get away from Dallas, the more the more of an accent people have? Like the smaller a town, the, the deeper the Texas accent? Yeah, like the the guy at the airport or the rental car place didn't seem to have much of an accent at all. Yeah, exactly. Here they even laugh with a Texas accent. But uh, <laughs> They what? They laugh? They, with... they laugh with a Texas accent. <laughs> um, also, I've noticed... People seem to be able to tell, and not in an unfriendly way necessarily, unless it's at the sheriff's department, but they can look at you and tell that you're not from around here. And I don't know if it's just because they know everybody around here, but I was in that McDonald's getting coffee. I don't know, maybe it was because my my sweater said New York, or I don't know what, but people just had this like, kind of like, look at you, look at you for a second, you can tell, oh, you're not, you're not from East Texas. Do you think it could possibly be the uh, the perm that you have? <laughs> it's not a perm. This is my natural hair. But yes, it, it could be it could be the uh, the, the, the 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 Jufro. That, that could be the giveaway. That's a good point. 
Like I said, there was definitely a bit of a disconnect with us Yankees wandering around Texas. But honestly, that entire state, as far as I can see, is full of some of the nicest people I've ever met. So now that we were fueled with some hot black coffee, that day's journey began with a trip to Bill's used tire. I needed to find Bill Cole and figure out what exactly happened. So Adam and I punched the address from the police reports for Bill's used tire into our GPS. About 20 minutes later, we arrived at the address. Unsurprisingly, there was no tire shop there. The building had been converted into a church. It was kind of an odd setting. It didn't really look like a church. And for that matter, it didn't look like a tire shop either. It was right across the street from a great big oil refinery. We drove around back into what almost appeared to be a junkyard. Could this be a building that was converted? It could be. I mean, it just looks like a house. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't look like anyone is back here. Oh, wait. Well, there's lights on. No, they're just entryway lights. This looks like a good place to get shot. It does. Like, so, in a, like if you were in the movies. Yes. And you were going to a place and you got shot, this is, the, this is that place. So I didn't expect this building to still be a tire shop, but it was a good place to start trying to find Bill Cole. I tried calling the phone number on the church sign. I tried calling the pastor with no luck. It was about 38 degrees and pouring down rain that day in Texas. So Adam and I spent about a half hour in the car trying to track down Bill Cole. We tried Googling, WhitePages.com, PeopleSearch, Facebook, even Twitter. But Bill Cole was completely off the grid. So I decided to go low-tech. I rolled into a local gas station and started asking around about Bill Cole. Swan is a very small town. But as it turns out, not small enough. No one knew who I was talking about, and no one even remembered the tire shop ever being there. As a last resort, I asked the cashier if she had a phone book behind the counter. She did, and she let me look at it. I felt kind of dumb right at that moment, because I can't believe I hadn't thought of this before. I haven't looked in a phone book for years. I wasn't even sure they still made them. But sure enough, in about two minutes, I found a phone number for Bill Cole. I gave Bill a call and told him who I was, and asked him if he remembered the robbery. Hey, Bill, do you happen to be the Bill that used to own the tire shop in Swan? Yeah. Oh, great. Hey, um, my name's Bob, and I'm uh, I'm doing a story on the Tyler Police Department. And um, one of the cases that we're looking at was a robbery that occurred there that you were the victim in. Um, uh, well, guy... I was robbed a couple of times. This was a guy named Kenny Snow that... Uh, uh, yeah, boxer, that shithead. So I spent about a half hour on the phone with Bill trying to convince him to sit down and do an interview with me. Bill fancies himself a bit of a conspiracy theorist and doesn't really trust anyone. But after a while, he agreed to meet me. He gave me directions to the local jack-in-the-box. I asked if we could meet somewhere quieter, but he said he'd only meet me in a very public place. So Bill comes in, and he's actually a very nice man. A little rough around the edges, but nice. He's a big guy. Probably about six foot two, maybe 280 pounds. White hair and a mustache. And he came strolling in using a cane. Bill is 78 years old now. Well, actually, now he's 79. He told me while we were talking that the next day was going to be his 79th birthday. God willing, he says. So after a few minutes of the usual pleasantries, you know, Bill checking my ID, asking me to show him pictures of me on the internet, inquiring about the type of gun I carry and my political party affiliation, we were ready to start our interview. I do have a full hour recorded of my interview with Bill Cole, but I won't torture you by making you listen to it. Because we were in the jack-in-the-box, which was really, really loud and had a lot of echo, the sound quality is absolutely horrible. And besides that, out of the hour, only about 15 minutes of it was talking about the case. 
Bill spent a lot of his time going off on tangents about politics. You, you take people like uh, Chet Hinchuber, Dick Hand Durbin, Horrible Harris, and the rest of these actors, you know? And consequently getting irritated with me because I didn't know what he was talking about. Get educated, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> but see, here's the thing about it. Bill was also full of stories. Seems like he doesn't get out much, and he was actually enjoying the opportunity to talk to somebody. One of the stories that he told was actually really interesting. He said that way back in the day, back in the 80s, he used to drink a lot. He said he's been sober now for over 30 years. But back in the early 80s, he came home one day, as he put it, pretty schnockered, got into an argument with his wife, and shot her with his 38. Damn near killed her, as he put it. He said that after he realized what he had done, he took her to the hospital and turned himself in to the police. Bill was charged and convicted of attempted murder. But this is the interesting part. Bill's sentence for attempted murder was three years in the state penitentiary. He said he served 17 months of those three years. The reason I find that interesting is because Bill Cole is a white guy. One of the things that I was able to discover while I was in Texas was the nature of the crimes that Kenny Snow was convicted of back in 1992. The forgery by passing charges were due to three checks that had been forged and that Kenny cashed. A friend wrote him three checks from someone else's account. Two of them were for $40, and one of them was for $50. Those incidents occurred back in the 80s, and Kenny was just put on probation for those. That's the incident that Leola was talking about back in episode 201, where she talked to the Smith County Sheriff. But he told me, the sheriff told me, when they get out of, uh, get out of jail, he said, tell them to get out of Tyler, Texas, and tell them to never come back. In 1992, Kenny rented a portable generator the kind construction crews carry around to job sites to power their equipment. The case documents say that Kenny never returned the generator, and he was charged with stealing it. It had a value of about $500. So the summary of Kenny's charges when he was sentenced in 1993 were passing $130 worth of checks, one of whom, by the way, was passed to Mr. Joe Costello, his name keeps coming up over and over again in this case, and stealing a $500 generator. For those crimes, Kenny was sentenced to 10 years in a Texas state penitentiary. So that's the interesting part. Bill Cole, white guy, shoots his wife and is charged with attempted murder. He's sentenced to three years in the state pen and serves 17 months. Kenny Snow, black guy, passes three bad checks worth a total of $130 and steals a $500 generator and is sentenced to 10 years in the Texas State Penitentiary, and serves three and a half before he's let off on parole. It's an interesting contrast. So once we got through the political discussions and the old war stories, Bill and I finally got around to talking about the case. He told me that he remembers it like it was yesterday. He said a single black man came in, asked him about a tire. When he turned around to look for it, the man sprayed him in the face with mace. Bill says he took a few steps back and tripped over a rack of tires. While he was on the ground, he says the assailant got right in his face. And in his words, he'll never forget that face. Which seems to be true. His description to the police was extremely detailed. He mentions it was a light-skinned black man with a square jaw reached into his front shirt pocket and told him to give him the money. He said the same thing to me that he says in the police reports. He said that the person that robbed him was familiar with his store because he knew exactly where he kept the money. He always kept it tucked away in the front pocket of his shirt in a Ziploc bag. Bill went on to tell me how lucky that son of a bitch is because normally he keeps a gun up front in a hiding place. And at night he hides it in the back. 
Well, that day he had forgotten to take it out of the back and move it up front. So he had to run all the way to the back of the shop to get it. And by the time he got out, the little red car was speeding down the highway. He said that he still had a shot, but the car was in the middle of traffic at that point, and he didn't want to hurt an innocent bystander. While I was talking to Bill, I was observing his body language. He was extremely confident as he told me this story. He was quite sure of himself. Until I mentioned to him that Kenny Snow has a great big gold tooth in the front of his mouth. Bill sat back in his chair. He looked a combination of confused and concerned. He got much quieter. The confidence was gone now. I'm going to play a short clip right now of the exchange I had with Bill about the gold tooth. Again, I apologize for the audio quality, but for credibility's sake, I want you to hear this with your own ears out of Bill's mouth. One, one thing that I noticed in the, in the description, did you see he had a big old gold tooth in the front of his mouth? Yeah, man, it's been four years now. The big thing that I'm looking at is, but, but is how... Is I don't remember that. Oh, I can still remember coming in. I remember when I turned around and uh, I'm looking at that kind of story. So Bill went from being extremely confident to now not so sure. As the conversation went on, he said that if something tricky was going on at the district attorney's office, it wouldn't surprise him a bit. I talked to him a little bit further about the investigation and asked him how he identified Kenny. He told me that the police officers came to his shop and showed him a couple of pages out of a mugshot book. He said when he saw Kenny Snow's picture, he was sure that that was him. I mentioned to him that that mugshot photo was taken five years before this offense. He was a little bit taken aback by that as well. I also asked him how many times he looked at mugshots, and he was certain there was only ever the one time, which I found surprising because the police reports say that they had showed him mugshots on another occasion as well. The reports say that he'd originally identified another suspect, but that lead ended up not panning out. He said in his words, that's some bullshit, they only ever showed me mugshots once. There was one more thing that Bill said that really got my attention. In passing, he mentioned the name Joe Costello while we were on the phone. I asked him how he knew Joe and what he had to do with this case, and he said he had nothing to do with the case, but he knows Joe because before he had the tire shop, he used to run a construction company, and Bill Cole had remodeled Joe Costello's gym a year or two before this. He said that he thinks maybe that's when he had seen Kenny before because his face looked familiar. And all I was thinking was, why does this guy's name keep popping up? By the end of the conversation, Bill and I were getting along pretty well. He was smiling and laughing, and he even said the next time we're in town, he'd have us over for dinner. So we shook hands and parted company, and Adam and I headed over to the second crime scene, the aggravated robbery that took place at Ricky Dealer's used cars. Unfortunately, we didn't make a lot of headway on that case. In fact, we didn't make any. Ricky Dealer used cars is now a tortilla shop that's only been in business for about a year. Apparently, there have been several businesses in and out of that building over the years. There was a body shop right next door, and I went over there and talked to those guys. But they had also only been working out of that shop for a short period of time. The victim in that second case is going to be hard to track down. His name is Juan Martinez. 
Trying to track down a guy named Juan Martinez in Texas has proven to be a futile effort. So I still have a long way to go in that case, and we'll be readdressing it here in a couple of weeks once I get some more information. So Adam and I left the tortilla shop and headed back to the courthouse to tackle that giant box of papers. We spent about three hours sorting through them, and April was nice enough to make copies of all of them for us. After reading until my head was aching, I can now tell you exactly what happened in Kenny Snow's case. So like I mentioned before, Kenny Snow was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 1993. He served about three and a half years and was let out on parole. While he was on parole, these robberies occurred. When Kenny was arrested, he said that he was visited by his parole officer. This was not Johnny Johnson at this point. He told me that his current parole officer only visited him once in the jail, and the purpose of the visit was to let him know that she was retiring and that she hoped he didn't do this and that he would have a new parole officer soon. This is where Johnny Johnson comes into the picture. But we'll get into the details of Kenny's allegations in a few minutes. As far as his legal case is concerned, Kenny sat in the Smith County Jail for almost two years. When all was said and done with, Kenny agreed to plead guilty to both the aggravated and the simple robbery, and he was given deferred adjudication probation for 10 years. This is like what in Michigan is called a clean slate probation. Basically, Snow was let out without being convicted. He was given probation terms, and remember, he's also still on parole. And if he went the entire 10 years of probation without violating it, the charges would be wiped off his record. After he got out, he started boxing again, and in about 2001, Jack Skeen began the process of violating his probation. His probation was being violated because he wasn't keeping up with his financial obligations. He had to pay restitution. He had to pay his probation officer for eight hours a week for maintaining his case. He had to pay court costs and fines. So every time he got behind on a payment, Skeen would file another motion to revoke his probation. But his probation wasn't actually revoked until 2004. Kenny had spent a few years boxing all over the country, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. I told you that he had lost 17 fights in a row. It seemed to me like quite a swing from somebody who was on top of the world before he went into jail. Like I mentioned, Kenny had told me in a previous letter that he was losing those fights on purpose. Well, while I was in Tyler, I met with another local attorney, another man that doesn't want to be named. But this gentleman not only knows all the players involved, and in fact knows David Dobbs personally, He's the guy that's going to try to convince Dobbs to sit down and do an interview with me. But this gentleman is also very familiar with the boxing world. He looked through Kenny's record with me, and he told me that Kenny Snow had become what the boxing world refers to as an opponent. Apparently in the boxing world, promoters will put their fighters up against people that they know they can beat. And in many cases, the opponents are paid to lose. Evidently, this is not something that's uncommon in the boxing world. Once a boxer has passed over the crest of his career and is on the downslope, they make their money by fighting and losing to people who are still on their way up. So I've also mentioned before that Kenny had told his probation officer that he wanted to move back to Ohio and he didn't want to box anymore. And he was told that he couldn't do that. He says that he could not shake Costello and Johnson. In his words, they owned him. I've also told you that after losing 17 fights, Kenny actually won his very last fight. He told me that in his very last fight, he was fighting a very worthy opponent. This is one of those guys that was still on his way up. The fighter had a great record, and Kenny was being paid to go into the ring and lose. But Kenny had had enough, and in his words, he knocked that fool out. This put an end to Kenny's professional opponent career. All of the managers were furious. He wasn't supposed to win that fight. It cost Costello money. It cost Johnson money. 
It cost the other boxer and managers money, but it was a victory for Kenny Snow. He says that that's when he finally got away from Johnson and Costello. And he packed up his things, and he moved back to Ohio. He said that he knew if he stayed in Tyler, he'd end up in jail. Costello wasn't going to let him off so easy. He was eventually picked up in Columbus, Ohio, where he was staying with his family for violating his probation, and he was extradited back to Texas. At that point, Kenny Snow was officially convicted of the simple and aggravated robbery and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. The reason that he was sentenced to 40 years was because of this deferred adjudication. If Kenny had been simply convicted back in 1998 and sentenced to 10 years of probation, then a probation violation would have just resulted in him serving the rest of his probation time in prison. But since the conviction was deferred, once he violated his probation, the prosecutor, Jack Skeen, basically got to go back to the drawing board and start over. Without a trial. See, Kenny had already pled guilty, and he wasn't allowed to revoke that plea. So now, 12 years later, he still has 28 years to go in the Stiles Unit Prison in Beaumont, Texas. Now, as bad as all of that sounds, the deferred adjudication probation may actually be the method that we can use to get Kenny Snow a new trial. Both of the lawyers I spoke with in Tyler, Texas, seemed taken aback by the fact that he was given deferred adjudication when he was already on a felony parole. Apparently, there's a law in the books in Texas, and probably rightly so, that says someone who has been convicted of a felony cannot be given deferred adjudication. Well, not only was Kenny Snow convicted of a felony, but he was still on the parole at the time of the incident. In all reality, if he did actually commit these crimes, he should have been locked up on a parole violation. Remember I mentioned in previous episodes that Kenny says Johnny Johnson was the deciding vote on the parole board for him not to be sent back to prison. Well, that was the first step in his process before he went before the judge on this case. There were two elements to this. First, the parole board had to decide if Kenny Snow had violated his parole by committing these robberies. And then after that, the prosecution and the judge had to decide how to sentence him after he pled guilty. In any case... Right now, the research team that's been helping us out at the Texas Tech School of Law is looking into the legality of this sentence. If this was an illegal sentence, Kenny should be able to file a motion to null and void the sentence and revoke his guilty plea. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Kenny's a free man. It just means that he'll be entitled to a fair trial. I'll report back to you on this situation as soon as I hear back from the Texas Tech School of Law. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Since I've returned from Texas, I've spoken with Kenny on the phone four times. After actually speaking to him on the phone, I have a much clearer picture now of the way that Kenny says that things went down back in 1997. So Kenny says the timeline went like this. He says that after he was arrested and his parole officer told him that she was retiring, 
That's when Johnny Johnson came into the picture. He said he'd been in for about two months at that point. Like I've told you before, Johnson said that he wants to be his manager and says that he's going to send some people to make a deal with Kenny to keep him out of jail so that he can keep boxing. Now here's where the big problem comes in. You all heard retired FBI agent Dennis Murphy on the show last week. Dennis says that he only ever visited Kenny in jail one time that he can remember. He said he was completely unattached to the case and that the assistant district attorney, David Dobbs, simply asked him to accompany him to go meet Mr. Snow to pick up this letter regarding the AIDS case. So I told Kenny this, and he has a very different version of that story, and hopefully we'll be able to sort out who's lying here in just a week or two. Kenny says that ADA Dobbs and Dennis Murphy came to visit him at the Smith County Jail before Edward Aits ever got there. He says that they had told him that Aits was out on bond and that he had been picked up in Dallas and was going to be transported back to Smith County. Kenny says that they even told him the details of Aits' bond violation. They told him that he was going to trucking school and he had some kind of a student loan and he would received an overpayment and he cast the check. And that's what they used to violate his bond. This is one of the angles that I'm hoping to be able to use to help confirm or deny Kenny Snow's story. I've written another letter to Edward Aits asking him what his relationship was with Kenny Snow. I've also asked him if he ever talked to Kenny about why his bond was violated. I have not told him what Kenny said about the situation. I'm curious to find out if Edward Aits could be the source of this information that Kenny has. Because if he's not, there's no other way for Kenny to have obtained it other than the way that he says he did, from Dobbs and Murphy. But Kenny says that this is when this whole plan was hatched. They told him that Aits had violated his bond. They told him that he'd be back in Smith County soon and they were going to put him on the same cell block as him and that if he could get a confession leading to a conviction of Aids, they'd make sure that he never did any jail time. Kenny also said something really strange to me. He says that Dennis Murphy looked him in the eye and told him that he will see Edward Aids convicted before he retires. I'm not sure what to think about that at this point. Dennis says that he never worked the Aids case, and it's not even the type of case that he would work. So why would he tell Kenny Snow that he wanted to see Aids convicted before he retired? Or did he say it at all? This case is becoming like the branches of a tree. The further I get into it, the more it splits off in different directions. But that's definitely another angle that I'm investigating. Because Kenny also says that Dobbs and Murphy together visited him in the Smith County Jail several times. He says at least three, maybe four times. And that there was one occasion where Dobbs came in alone. I had written Kenny in a letter a few weeks back that Murphy says he only visited him the one time. At that point, Kenny filed a request with the Smith County Jail to obtain his visitor logs. I have also filed the same request. Kenny says that those visitor logs will prove that Murphy and Dobbs were visiting him on multiple occasions. Hopefully, we'll receive a response to those requests soon, but there's even a bigger reason that I want to see those logs. It's not just to prove whether or not David Dobbs and Dennis Murphy visited Snow on several occasions. That could be chalked up to memory. More importantly, what I want to know is did Dennis Murphy and David Dobbs visit Kenny Snow in the Smith County Jail before Edward Aits was there? Like I said, multiple visits could be explained away by a fallible memory. But if everything that Dennis Murphy told us in the interview last week is true, there is absolutely no reason whatsoever for him to have been visiting Kenny Snow in the Smith County Jail before Edward Aits got there. And Kenny was adamant about that point. He said the entire plan was hatched, while Edward Aits was still being held in Dallas. He knew what he was supposed to do before Aits got there. So I should be receiving those visitor logs back from the Smith County Jail very soon. They may even be in my mailbox today. 
and I'm also going to give Dennis Murphy another call and ask him about this. Dennis was kind enough to be on the show, and I'm hoping he could shed some light on this situation. The tough part about investigating these cases is you begin to develop relationships with these people. I really like Dennis Murphy. I've talked to him several times. He seems like a really good guy, and the fact that he was willing to come on and be interviewed says a lot about him. I hate to think that he could have been lying to me, and all of you. So part of me is hoping that he isn't. But at the same time, I really like Kenny, too. After being able to talk to him on the phone several times, he's just got a great, bubbly personality. He even tells me he loves me every time before he hangs up the phone. But none of that matters. It doesn't matter if I like Kenny Snow. It doesn't matter if I like Dennis Murphy. It doesn't matter if I think the Tyler Police Chief is kind of a jerk. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is the truth and what we can prove. And we're at a major crossroads right now. We have two very different stories from Kenny Snow and Dennis Murphy. And there's a document on its way that's going to prove that one or the other is lying. Most of the rest of the story that Kenny told me was very similar to what he had written. And I only say that because Kenny really struggles to write. He doesn't have much of an education, and he's just right now working on finishing up his GED. But that's only relevant to you for you to understand that it's a lot easier to get clear information out of Kenny when he's talking rather than when he's writing. But given the fact that Kenny doesn't write very well, even today, and could barely write at all back in 1997, I asked him who wrote the letter that was used at Eight's trial, the one that Eight's had supposedly written as a script for Kenny to memorize. And his reaction to that question floored me. First of all, he said that David Dobbs is the one that wrote the letter and gave it to him. But more importantly, he didn't know that that letter had been used at the trial. He told me a very different version of what that letter was. He said Dobbs and Murphy told him that he needed to find a way to manipulate Edward Eights to get him to transfer some money into his commissary account. He said that they had to have something to show that he was being paid off by Eights. Kenny finally accomplished this by getting Edward Eights to transfer $25 into his account. He made up some kind of excuse about sending photos to his dad or something like that. And Eights helped him out. He gave him the 25 bucks. So Kenny says that he printed off the receipt and he gave it to Dobbs. He says that next Dobbs came to him with a script. He says that Dobbs told him to memorize it, and that was to be his testimony at trial. He was supposed to say that Edward Eights paid him off and told him to tell the court that he had heard someone else confess. I explained to him at trial, they actually presented a letter into evidence and supposedly had a handwriting analyst confirm that the letter was written by Edward Eights and given to Kenny Snow. The only way that I could describe Kenny's reaction to that would be confused. He didn't even understand what I was telling him. He said there was no letter. That wasn't what he did. He just testified to exactly what I just told you. I told him that the prosecution claimed that Aids had offered $1,000 to him in order for him to testify that someone else had confessed. Kenny was completely dumbfounded by this. He says that he didn't know any letter had been used as evidence. He didn't know about the $1,000. And he repeated again to me that the only letter that he's aware of is the script that David Dobbs wrote and gave to him. So again, we have two very different versions of the story. We have the story that the prosecution presented at Ace's trial in a very different version that Kenny Snow tells us. But Kenny's reaction to all this was a big deal to me. I really don't think that he even understood what I was telling him about that letter. That letter that you said that Dave Dobbs wrote to give you, they presented that at trial and said that that script was something that Edward Eights wrote and gave to you to memorize. That's what they said at trial. No, that's what they gave me. Yeah, well, they they didn't tell them that at the trial. They said that 
they said that eights gave it to you and that you, as a matter of fact, when I interviewed Dennis Murphy two weeks ago, he said that the reason, he says he only visited you one time and that you had called the district attorney because eights had given you this letter and you wanted Dobbs, the ADA, to come down to give him that letter to... No. 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 I've requested a copy of the trial transcript from Edward Eight's trial, and I'm hoping that might help connect some of these dots. So as you might have guessed, this story is continuing on to encompass not just Kenny Snow, but also Edward Eight's. Because if what Kenny's saying is true about what happened after he was arrested, then Edward Eight's deserves a new trial too. Even if it turns out that Kenny Snow is guilty and actually committed the robberies, what happened after was still a blatant violation of the law. And in order to help Edward Eights, it's going to take the cooperation and the assistance of Kenny Snow. It's going to take his testimony, and it's going to take our investigation. Because one thing that I'm very certain of is the fact that Kenny Snow was indeed compensated for his testimony against Edward Eights. He was a convicted felon on parole when he supposedly committed two robberies, one of which was a brutal assault that sent a man to the hospital, and his sentence was a clean slate probation deferred adjudication. I don't consider it even reasonable to assume that that sentence was legit without a deal being made. When we look at it in perspective, 15 years before this, Kenny passed three checks totaling $130 and didn't return a $500 portable generator, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And now that same county criminal justice system looks at two violent robberies supposedly committed by a convicted felon on parole and his parole is not revoked, and he's given a slap on the wrist. I don't believe for a second that there was not a deal made. Kenny says that the approver of this deal was none other than District Attorney at the time, Jack Skeen. He was Dobbs' boss. Kenny says that Dobbs made him promises and told him that he had to get Skeen to approve, and the whole thing was confirmed by a nod from Skeen as he walked into the courtroom. The last thing that Kenny told me that really threw me for a loop was the fact that he doesn't deny being at Bill's used tires on that day. He says that he was there, right around noon, right about when the robbery occurred. He says that a tire in his car kept going flat. He and his girlfriend, Sean, needed to leave and head back to Dallas to train for his next big fight. So he says that he took the wheel off and got in the car with a friend, a woman named Patricia Mims. She drives a blue car. He says that Patricia drove him to Bill's used tire, and as they pulled in, they had the radio turned up really loud. I get out, I go in, the music is is loud. I walk around. The reason why he don't never see me close to because he said I, I came to him demanding this robbery. No, I didn't. I went in, I went around, I see, I read the part where the time was. He come up behind me talking bullshit, just talking. Like, you need to get out of here and turn that damn music down and all that. When I turned around, he up on me. I pushed him up off of me and walked out, got in my car and left. Now, reason why he didn't see the tooth, because we never had no confrontation. Because anybody who knows me knows I got a I got, I got, I got nice, handsome smile, but you're going to see <laughs> that going too, bro. He says there was no mace. There was no robbery. Nobody fell on the floor. He says that it was a 10-second altercation, and he left and went to go buy a tire elsewhere. This one really threw me for a loop, because Bill Cole didn't mention anything about any other altercation. The day of the crime was the same, 
the time of the crime was about the same. It's just not making sense to me. I thought Kenny would tell me that he'd never been to that tire shop and he knows nothing about it. I certainly didn't think that he would tell me that he was there and that he had an altercation with Bill Cole right around the same time as the robbery. So I'm not really sure what to think about that at this point. For starters, you have the fact that Kenny on tape confessed to that crime. And I should have copies of those videotapes in the next couple of days. But then you have the fact that when Bill Cole heard that Kenny Snow has a gold tooth, he's not so sure that it was Kenny Snow who committed the robbery anymore. That tooth isn't something that's easily missed. So that leads me to believe that maybe Kenny's confession really was coerced. And he is completely innocent. But then Kenny says that he was there. And this altercation occurred. But he also says that he left in a blue car. And Bill Cole says the assailant left in a red car or a wine-colored car. But Kenny did have a wine-colored car. I just don't know at this point. And this is another one of those things that could make or break the case. My next order of business is to give Bill Cole a call and ask him if another altercation occurred on that same day. If he says that it did, we may have one hell of a lead. If he says that it didn't, then I don't know where we go from here, at least regarding Kenny's claim of innocence in this particular crime. Kenny also says that he believes that Patricia Mims was the one that was behind the Crime Stoppers tip. He thinks that she had a friend call it in in order to collect the reward money. But I see in the police reports that Patricia Mims was actually arrested and interrogated for these crimes as well. So that's another avenue that I have to go down. I'm going to have to also pull the interrogation videos from Patricia Mims and get a hold of her case file. Between my trip to Texas and the conversations that I've had with Kenny Snow, I've got a pile of new leads sitting in front of me right next to a giant pile of new documents that I need to read through again. There is a tangled web of lies in Smith County, Texas. One way or the other, we're going to find the truth. With all these new leads and all these different avenues of investigation, I've got a lot of work on my hands. So for the time being, we're going to hit pause on the Kenny Snow case for at least a couple of weeks. During that time, I'll continue to chase down these leads and see if I can connect some more of these dots. In the meantime, we're going to revisit the Heyman Lee murder case for a few episodes. This week, I'll be heading to Baltimore to attend Anand Syed's post-conviction relief hearing. While I'm there, I'll be tweeting and periscoping and updating on Facebook as much as I can. I'm also hoping to track down a couple of leads on that case, and there's a few people I want to interview while I'm there. And in two weeks, I'll drop an episode about that trip to Baltimore. I'll report on the hearing and anything else I find out while I'm there. But next week's episode is going to contain an interview with someone we've been waiting to hear from for months. Behavioral analysis and profilers, Jim Clemente and Laura Richards. This will be part one of what will probably be a two or three part interview with Jim and Laura. And in next week's episode... They analyze the audio recordings of Jay Wilde's interrogations. Jay is the Achilles heel of this case. He's literally the only thing, the only person that implicates Anand Syed in the murder of Heyman Lee. And next week, Jim and Laura are about to blow this case wide open. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to today's sponsor, Audible, for providing all of the funding for today's program. 
and be sure to show your support to Audible and to this show by downloading your free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. If you haven't done so already, make sure you follow the show on Twitter at TruthJusticePod and most definitely follow the show on Periscope at Serial Dynasty. I will probably be doing a lot of periscoping while I'm in Baltimore this week. Follow me on Facebook at Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. Keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. If you have a new case that you'd like to be investigated, send those emails into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. And however you do it, make sure you keep in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.